Welcome to the Royal Society of Medicine's Trauma and Orthopaedic Section podcast. My name is Akib Khan. I am an orthopaedic registrar on the RSM Council, and I will be your host through this series of podcasts. We will feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. These speakers have all contributed at one of our events. For more details on our events, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine website or on socials using the handle RSM Ortho. Welcome to this episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Trauma and Orthopedics section podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robert O'Toole, who is a professor of orthopedics with tenure at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and division head of orthopedic traumatology and chief of orthopedics at R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center. He has previously served as the director of clinical research and program director for an orthopedic trauma fellowship program, the Orthopedic Traumatology Fellowship Program, since 2009. He is active in clinical care, research, and education pertaining to patients who sustain orthopedic trauma. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we've just had a very interesting discussion um, and presentation by yourself on the Fix-It study, which you are heavily involved in. And what I wanted to ask you was, how did the Fix-It study come about? Yeah, I think the Fix-It study came about because it was recognized from some big studies like the LEAP study, uh, which Mike Bossy and Ellen McKenzie led and was published in the Journal of Medicine, that we weren't doing so well with bad open tibia fractures in terms of having a very high complication rate. Over 50% of the patients are getting readmitted for complications. And people were kind of looking around and saying, hey, is there something we can do better to lower this complication rate, particularly in infections? Yeah, brilliant. In terms of the actual way that you set it up, I think that this is a military-funded study, is that correct? And you were looking at infection rates, you know, that was one of the main questions that you had. How, how did you come about going through all of that? Yeah, that's right. So the Department, U.S. Department of Defense uh, funded this and, you know, it was sort of recognized at the time that uh, the, the injuries that were being sustained in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, these IED blasts were having high infection rates. And a lot of those are being treated by ring fixators, actually. And so there were some studies coming out of the military at the time that Fix-It was designed around 2009 that were demonstrating pretty good results with ring fixators. And so that was this one signal that influenced Fix-It very much was that, oh, you know, that's interesting. If we, instead of putting nails and plates in these open fractures, if we avoid metal at the fracture site, maybe that would be better and we'd have less chance of infection. And then Around the same time, uh, Hudson published a series, a retrospective series out of Miami, where he had almost 70 patients that were bad injuries, so-called Gastelo-Anderson 3Bs and some even 3Cs. And the infection rates had been in the order of 25 or 30 percent in most series, and he showed a zero percent infection rate in those consecutive sites. And so that was very interesting, right? So we saw, you know, those studies, and that's what influenced the fixed investigators. Um, and that's why the U.S. military was interested in it, too. It said, hey, we've got this big problem, but is it is it really better? You know, we really need a prospective randomized trial to figure this out. We can't just do smaller retrospective studies to really answer this. Fix-It happened because of a collaboration between researchers and orthopedic trauma surgeons in North America. This collaboration is called METRIC, the Major Extremity Trauma and Rehabilitation Consortium. METRIC is a large group with a method center at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, who, of course, were crucial in getting Fix-It to be done. And, and Fix-It was really one of the first metric studies. But since then, metric has gone on to do 
30 studies, et cetera, and enroll almost 20,000 patients to date. But clearly, Fix It never would have happened without uh, metric and this large collaboration of uh, many surgeons and researchers. Sure. And in terms of actually setting up the study, you were talking about the factors that you have to think about. So the surgeon factors and the patient factors. Would you mind going over those again with us, please? Yeah, there were some there were some real challenges for this study. And so one of them is, you know, can you get the surgeons even agree to do this? You know, so do any randomized trial, right? You have to have equipoise um, at the surgeon level, usually if you're going to try and randomize at the patient level. And so there's differential expertise in this. And so most people are doing nails and plates and there were less surgeons who, you know, given the choice, they would do a, a ring fixator. And so we had to get buy-in for that. And in some cases, you know, we had to get minimum experience requirements and training and make sure that, you know, we're giving the ring fixers a somewhat of a fair shake because there's going to be differential expertise. So that was definitely a challenge is would people do it? So people were very enthusiastic about this and were excited about the promise of ring fixers. And so that actually wasn't too much of a problem. The second problem was, can we get the patients to do it? And so, you know, you're, when you go and randomize, you know, approach a patient on for a clinical trial and you're asking them about two treatment arms that don't really seem very different to the patient, they're likely to do it, right? Whereas here, the two treatment arms are pretty different, right? We're gonna put a rod inside your tibia we're going to have this birdcage contraption outside your leg. What do you want? Right. And they may have an opinion. They may not, you know, they may have one of those directions they want to go. And so we didn't know if we would be able to randomize people in this or not. And so we actually had an escape valve there. Right. So we had a, if the patients refused randomization, we said, look, we better have a prospective arm. This was the first metric trial. And so we were frankly nervous that like, what if it doesn't work? You know, what if no one does a randomization? And so patients did do the randomization, but there are some patients who refused and there is an observational arm, uh, which we have not, you know, looked at those results at yet at all yet. The, the last piece is that the injuries just aren't common. You know, the, these are not common injuries. So we're fortunate to work at a pretty big center. There are other big centers in the United States. And if you look at you know, how these, how many patients were enrolled, you know, we were the leading center in terms of enrolling patients and we didn't quite enroll a patient a month, you know, so these are, these are not that common, these bad tibia fractures. And so it really requires a system like this where 20 centers came together to do this kind of study. And I think, you know, it, it shows you, it took, was it seven years in total to recruit enough? Yeah. Yeah. There? Over six years to, six to years. do it. And so, you know, it required patients and a lot of infrastructure and some long-term vision, you know, it's 12 years after we designed the study and uh, it's not in publication yet, you know, so it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a something you're going to do this weekend. It's a, you know, it's a long, long-term project. And I think that the findings are actually quite surprising. Um, would you mind summarizing what were you actually looking for and what were your findings? Sure. So our primary outcome measure was a, uh, so for severe or major complication. We define that as one of six events that caused the patient to go back to the operating room or be at least be admitted. And so it was the proportion of the patients who had at least one of those in the first year. And so those six complications are detailed out, but involve infection, amputation, hardware failure, problems with the flap, things like this. And so they're, they're major things. And so it was anticipated out of that LEAP study years ago that, you know, we would have a high proportion of patients that would have that. And we hoped it would be lower in the rings. And in particular, the biologic rationale was that, look, because there's no metal at the fracture site, we're going to get less infections because we're not going to have as much biofilm issue. And that's what drives infections and orthopedic trauma. And so that's going to drive all these other complications. But we didn't find that. 
right? <laughs> so we actually found the opposite of that. So we found that actually the composite outcome measure, the primary outcome measure wasn't lower, it was higher in the ring fixer group. And the infection rate was essentially the same in the two groups. And so that was a big surprise because we thought we had a strong biologic rationale. We had a good signal from these level four studies that we could, you know, have this new uh, sort of advance uh, and that would lower the infection rate, but that's not what we found at all. I mean, I, I, the numbers are, are amazing, aren't they? So I, the numbers that you presented, I think you presented at the OTA as well, major complications of 44% in the internal fixator group and 63% in the ring fixator group. And, you know, that's just, it, it goes against what you would presume based on the actual biology behind these sort of injuries. Right. And we're, you know, we're picking obviously some of the worst of the worst injuries here, yeah. right? Like, I mean, not the very worst, we're excluding three C's, but th this is a bad cohort, but it does, you know, Mike Bossy is, is quick to point out who's been involved in this field for a long time and done a lot of groundbreaking research in this area that we haven't made much progress. You know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at what's, what the studies coming out of the States 25 years ago, you know, the paper patients in LEAP were in the 1990s, you know, and now we're having patients now, we, we still have tons of infections. And so um, it, it really makes you uh, think a little bit critically about what, what progress have we actually made during this time period. I mean, there's clearly some surprise with the results. And my real question is, does this change your practice or how will this change practice for patients with these sort of injuries? Yeah, for, for me personally and for our center, we, we kind of are like the fix-it trial. I mean, we really had a lot of equipoise between these two. We, we looked at these two technologies as having pros and cons, but we sort of assumed that one of the pros was the infection rate would be lower. You know, that's kind of was our, what we were operating under that assumption for various reasons, as, as I discussed before. And so for me, it definitely makes me less likely to do a ring fixator acutely. Now, there's other reasons, you know, in, in patients who have an infection or there's a reason, you know, advantage of extraction osteogenesis or other reasons with a big bone gap. But for just a regular tibia fracture, it's definitely made me personally less likely to suggest a ring fixator for those patients. Brilliant. No, thank you so much for going over the Fix-It study with us. I do have a few other questions for you, which may be slightly away from the Fix-It study, but still on the same topic of open fractures in, in the tibia. And sure. my, my question is really, you know, should, should primary intramedullary fixation have flaps at the same time as the nail? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so as you said, that's outside the domain of fix it, but now just my opinion. So I personally think the, um, I think there is reasonable evidence that you want to have your flap coverage as close to the fixation time point as you can. And so at our center, we're lucky that we can typically do that. And so we will fix and flap the same day and so we will you know with the fixation surgeon will come in and do the nail and then the flap will immediately cover or occasionally the next day you know so we'll do a ring and then do an antibiotic bee pouch or something overnight and then first start the next day uh, if there's some logistical issue or the, there's something about the situation but in general i think the idea of putting in fixation and then waiting a long time period to do the flap doesn't make a ton of sense to me and it sounds risky but i understand there are system issues right it's easy to say that when i'm sure. in a place that has great flap carpet excellent partners who can really cover this stuff and not all systems have that yeah, very true. I mean, in the UK, we have a, a national guideline that uh, if it does occur, it should happen within 72 hours, um, which obviously is sometimes very difficult even here to achieve uh, because you need to have that orthoplastic setup. Right. I kind of think there's two issues there, right? So one issue is when, you, when you're going to cover it, what is the delta between fixation and coverage? So even if you waited two weeks to cover it, I still feel strongly that you should have the nail on the flap on the same day. 
But the second issue, which I think your guideline is, is that you need to cover it within three days. And so the first one is easier for us to do in the States, right? We can arrange to yeah, have the nail and the flap done on the same day, but getting it done within three days of a lot of trauma centers, I think you guys are way ahead of us if you're able to do that system-wide. I think, um, you know, some of the results presented today uh, are super interesting. And I do wonder if that is a big advantage. It may be, but that is really tricky for us to, to do in a lot of centers. It's just, we're not set up for that, you know? And in terms of bone loss in the tibia, what is your management strategy? What, what do you do when you find that the significant bone loss? In terms of bone defects in the tibia, if I have internal fixation, either a nail or a plate, I tend to put in an antibiotic pregnated spacer and then come back either with a posterior lateral approach or potentially elevating the flap, depending on where the pedicle is for the flap, if the patient has a flap, and then do some bone grafting at four to six weeks uh, if soft tissues allow it. If I'm treating the patient with a ring fixator, then I'm much more likely to do distraction osteogenesis. I tend not to use a spacer in those cases, although that is that is another option that can be done. Um, thank you so much for spending the time to talk with us today. And um, I'm sure that our podcast listeners are really grateful for the insight into the Fix-It study. You bet. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Orthopedic Section podcast. For more details on our events and speakers, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine's website or follow us on social media using the handle RSMAutho.